Hi, you're listening to Hoopleheads, a Deadwood podcast at MovieFail. My name is Soren Howe, and I'm here with Esther Rosenfield. And today we're going to be talking about the fifth episode of season three of Deadwood, which is A Two-Headed Beast. Um, it's directed by Daniel Minahan, and it is written by David Milch. So, you're right. Ow. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Did you just fall off your chair? Uh. <laughs> Hello? Are you alright? <laughs> so here's what just happened. What the hell just happened? <laughs> so I, I'm sitting at my desk, and I remembered that I left my phone on vibrate on a stool that's next to my chair a little bit away from me. So I thought, oh no, it's going to make noise if it buzzes. So I went to reach back and I just kind of, what happened is that the chair fell over and I fell (laughs) backwards out of the chair. Amazing start. And you, the episode was that good, huh? That, and that is also (laughs) representative of how I felt watching this episode. (laughs) Yeah. So, so this is uh, please don't cut this that. Is something, <laughs> this is something I've uh, I've been uh, waiting for for some time, but I genuinely had forgotten pretty much everything in this episode except for the fight. Um, and uh, yeah, I one thing actually I was really this is a small point, but there's one uh, there's one little moment in the episode where. Uh, it's revealed that, in fact, Al has managed to keep uh, the head, the severed head that he had been speaking to uh, in a good chunk of last season in a cardboard box. He has now moved it to a wooden box, um, which means that we're in for more monologues, which I am very excited by. And what the, the reason I bring it up is that I had a distinct memory of that continuing, but then I was like, not sure, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to, a like spoiled that the head's still there, <laughs> and B uh, be wrong. But I'm almost positive my favorite head moment has not happened yet. There's another storyline that happens in season three that hasn't happened that will. That, that's something that I also remember being uh, very exciting as well. Um, but the fight was one of the big ones. However, even despite all of those uh, those things that I had in the back of my head, I had completely forgotten about this this storyline with uh, with Hostetler and uh, and just oh my god. Okay, so. Wow, yeah, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. It's actually just really sad and awful. But <laughs> I mean, I'm just just the episode as a whole is, I'll, I'll say this, this is the first time, and I, I've loved this show throughout, but this is the first time I've gotten to the end of an episode and been mad that we're watching it weekly, because I want <laughs> to watch the next episode right now. I need to know mm. what happens. Mm. So you, <sighs> uh, So I take it you you enjoyed it then? No, it was terrible. Um, <laughs> no, this is a fantastic episode. My God. Um, I don't even know where to start. Well, so uh, I think it might be worth just getting, because obviously there's the central pieces that we're going to want to discuss. So maybe it's worth getting one of the other major plot lines, but maybe we don't have as much to say. I don't know. Uh, out yeah. of the way, which is um, Alma's story. Yeah. Um so you were correct last week that she is back on drugs. That's why she was, why Leon was signaling to her. Um, right. And it's interesting that we find this out first from Leon and not from her. 
Uh, well, first of all, right. I, I do want to point again. So this is another Dan Dan Minahan joint. Um, we love him. We're big fans here at the Plants. And yeah, I, I uh, Jesus. And one thing I want to point out just right off the bat, there's a great moment. Uh, the first time we see Alma, it's in this scene in the bank. She's talking to Merrick, and it starts with this shot of her kind of pruning this this plant. And Merrick is talking off screen, and just this really clever bit where you would, it's presented in such a way that you would think Merrick is like talking to her from across the room. Um, but then it cuts to the reverse, and he's literally sitting across the table from her. So it's just this really clever way of demonstrating that, like, she's not paying attention to him whatsoever. She's just paying attention to this right. plant. Um, and it's a really funny, like, it's a joke that's done entirely in editing. Like, there's no, there, this, this doesn't exist in the dialogue. It's, it's funny purely because of how this scene is cut. Um, and that's cool. Yeah, I mean, the, the... I think they do a good job of, despite the fact that I had predicted this, um, I think we had a couple of options, right? She could have been sneaking off with Leon because she was in a thing with Leon, or Not she could have just Super plausible, maybe, or, yeah. But, but, I mean, who knows? I don't know. I mean, it was uh, it was unclear, but obviously we know Leon's famous for pretty much one thing. I mean, the way he had originally approached her seemed to be in a, not drug-related, but rather like uh, he was hitting on her sort of way. So that's sort of where that came from. Um, so I was still like, you know, what the hell is going on with Alma? Uh, and of course, you know, Merrick is so easily, uh, taken that he was just <laughs> completely just sucked into the, and then later when he's reading the word, he's like, actually, this is just vacuous nonsense. Why, why was I <laughs> so smitten with these words when I first heard them? But now I just, I don't know. I don't understand. Um, so yeah, I think that, uh, uh, it's communicated in the scene uh, pretty well. And, and of course, Trixie spots it right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's also Ellsworth later on in the, in the episode, like everyone seems to be able to pick up on this pretty quickly. And it's so funny because I feel like, you know, nobody, nobody uses laudanum. I suppose there's probably opium users today for sure, but there's no like laudanum drinkers. Right. And so it's not like something that people would necessarily catch on to. You might think you know, there's something a little off about somebody, but there, everyone's just like, I know what that looks like. She's on dope again. That's what's happening. And everyone just sort of, uh, immediately. Yeah. It's, her. it's because of the context of, of her history. It's like you, you right. kind of have to know right. what she's been through in the past to be able to recognize that. And obviously Ellsworth does. Um, yeah, it is. It's an interesting turn in a number of ways, because I think, on a lot of shows, you would see something like this as like, oh, they're going back to that well again. They need to stir up some right. drama. So we'll just have Alma get addicted to dope again. Um, but the way I think, I think it's presented. I mean, the th- the three scenes here are, are ordered so well, right? Because we have this early scene of her and Merrick where she's clearly... It's interesting because you you don't really see it until Merrick sees it. You don't really get right. that how spaced out she right. is because, like him, you're kind of like, oh, well, that's just kind of how she is. She's being very charming and and all that. Um, and then when Merrick realizes what's what was actually going on, you kind of are able to look back and go, oh, wait, she was kind of spaced out. She was like not clearly not all there and just kind right. of focused on her plant. So then it's really cool, I think, that again, like I said, we hear it from Leon first, um, not from. 
I mean, obviously Alma's not going to tell anyone, but it's not like they then cut to Alma doing drugs. They cut to a scene of Leon admitting it to Psy. And I think it creates... It's a it's a strange choice in a number of ways, because it creates some distance from her, I think. It creates an almost, like... It's like we're at we're experiencing her her story at a remove, in in, in a certain way, um, and in terms of stories about addiction, I'm you know, I don't know how I feel about that, but I think that this show has been pretty sensitive about her in the past, so I'm I'm gonna see where they're going with it. Yeah, I mean, I think the other the other way it's different is that it, it's the context, right? Because it's um, you know before she was doing laudanum in her room alone and never really going out anyway so it was all very isolated and now she's heading up the bank and she's out and about and she's doing things she's running the claim so how it's going to manifest in her interactions with other people are going to be it's going to be much more significant now um you know before she was able to do it in private for a long time and it was really only people coming to visit her you know that uh, revealed really what was going on but now you know, she's, <laughs> she's, uh, uh, tipped her hand, like, you know, five different ways in the course of one episode. So, and in a really how, sad way, I mean, you want to talk yeah. about that Ellsworth scene, just yeah, tragic. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's really sad both because, I mean, just for starters, the fact that Ellsworth is the way he realizes that something is up is because she's showing him like affection yeah. That's heartbreaking. And you, and you realize really quickly that they just have had absolutely zero uh, contact. Yeah. You know, it's or, well, because this yeah. is like, it's not a marriage of convenience, but it is a marriage of, um, not of romance, certainly. Right. So there is an element of like, it is, it is, it is so sad that the way that he knows that something is wrong with her is that she is showing him physical affection. Um, and, and he almost he almost falls for it. Yeah. Uh, well, it's it's it, this again in such a great performance. Like you can see in him that he there's a part of him that wants to fall for it, that wants to go along with it, and say and like even though if he knows something is wrong, there's a part of him that's like, well, I I want love from her. Not even necessarily. It's not something as basic as just I I want to get laid. It's like he wants to have that emotional connection with her. But he is also smart enough to say, this is not coming from a healthy place. This is not coming from a place where I can feel comfortable accepting it because she is not in the right state of mind. She is not doing this because she loves me. She's doing this because she's high. And that is de- deeply depressing. And well, and I think it also, you know, there's a sense of anger, I think, that he feels because it means that she's... I think he sees it as a little bit, well, not a little bit. He sees it as a sense of betrayal, right? He's yeah. really committed to trying making this weird marriage work, you know, at least for Sophia and for managing the claim and trying to, you know, make a fairly normal life with no pressure on her to, you know, be like physical or intimate or anything like that. And, uh, and so like, he's pretty much thrown his whole thing into this and may, you know, he probably sees it as, as, you know, being, selfish and not not you know which of course is not necessarily the most uh healthy way of of dealing with somebody who is addicted to a you know some sort of substance but it's certainly a very uh real and honest and emotional emotional reaction to 
you know, the way you might feel if somebody, if you found that somebody was uh, sort of um, giving up their faculties, you know, in such a obvious way and uh, in a way that's going to be, you know, detrimental to your, to your family. Well, it's also just this notion of like, you can tell that there is some resentment because when he says at the end of this scene, like, don't forget to get Sophia, he says it very insistently and very, and all, not angrily because Ellsworth doesn't get angry with Alma, but he mm. says it very like, well, well, I mean, he was pretty pissed after she went to go talk to Hearst, but he doesn't, he was, you're right. But he, that was, that was not, that wasn't anger that was directed at her so much in this, not in the same way. I feel like, or that was just right, sort right, of right. kind of bubbling over frustration with the fact that she didn't listen. And, and made a mistake that he warned her against. This is with, right. you know, more directly, like, you're doing something yeah, that yeah, is, yeah. you know, whether or not you can help it, it's, he takes it as, like, disrespectful to the family that they are trying to build and keep together. And he is someone who is, like you say, really committed to that. And he sees this, I think, as a sign that she isn't. And 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 again, there is, like, this element of tragedy, like, she did not want to take the medicine when she was sick because she was afraid that this would happen. And there is an element of like, well, she made a choice and she made a choice knowing that this was the possible outcome, but what else was she supposed to do? You know, it's not like she is a reckless person who is, who is just a thrill seeker and just loves getting high. You know, she is ill and, she was, you know, she needed medicine and she knew that this could possibly happen, but she didn't have another choice. And this is not, addiction isn't something you can help. It's, it's a, it's a part of, it's a part of you and you can get better, but it's not necessarily your fault. And I think Deadwood is really good at sensitively depicting that. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I wonder how it's going to, you know, eventually I'm sure Doc Cochran will find out and it'll be. Um, I'm curious to see his how he feels after you know she warned him. She was like, "This was this is a bad idea," um, and of course he suspects there's something off about her, uh, which he already talked to Trixie about. Uh, they've been building this storyline for like the whole season, right? It's all been building up to this reveal, um, and now we have confirmation of exactly what's what's going on, um, which I imagine. I don't know, but I imagine it's going to have some sort of ramifications beyond just Alma's, um, sto- you know, she's now in charge of basically all of the finances of Deadwood. Um, she's now the main holdout, you know, versus Hearst, uh, in terms of her claim. So this is, you know, she's not an insignificant person in this town. She's actually very central to it. And, uh, if she doesn't have her faculties about her, it's going to be, uh, you know, there, there could be some real um, issues with her uh, you know, judgment and things like that, and that could end up, you know, affecting other people. Yeah, it's it's it is a it's a sad development for sure. Yeah, it's a sad one, and yeah, and I, like I said, I don't know how it's going to you know, end up playing into the the central plots of obviously Hearst's um, Hearst's centrality to the whole story is. Uh, makes me think that it's going to end up playing a role there, but uh, I guess it's it's too early to say. But it is clearly being emphasized by the show, which you know should alert us that there's a there's going to be some fallout from it. Um, 
trying to think if uh... not a lot of little stuff in this episode. Um, I will say, I, hell, hell of a hell of an opening scene. I was about to mention that. <laughs> Extremely funny. There's this scene where Sai goes to Con Stapleton and says, "Well, you know, Al uh, has named someone his his representative in dealings with her. So I was thinking I could do the same for you." And Con Stapleton says, "I am far too horny to have this conversation." <laughs> and Sai says, "I understand, and I will go away." <laughs> Well, I mean, it. I mean, it opens with him, you know, talking into this this prostitute's breasts. I mean, it's just, it's uh, it's, it's really, quite a just the notion, just just the concept of like Deadwood is really good at disguising conversation in kind of flowery old timey language, and just the fact that the the essence of this conversation is, you know, he says like some things to the effect of like I have been struck with a, a sec. What is he? God, what does he say? A, a spasm of sex interest. <laughs> Right, right, <laughs> which is right, a really right. funny way to say I'm horny, um, and the fact that he just says it, and that Sai says, "Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> you're no, you're no use." Um, but also just really amusing, like again, and the scene with um, with um, Leon that we talked about too. Again, really funny that Sai, we th- when he enters the show, we think of him as kind of being on the level with Al in terms of a power player, but right. his minions are just completely exactly. useless in every way. Exactly. It's just, especially like in this episode in particular, when you see them pitted against each other, it's like there's no contest. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, he, he he's like, well, I'll go to my second, and he realizes that his second, the best he's got is Con Stapleton, which is just... <laughs> tragic i mean that's just sad uh, i mean what 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 does that even mean um so yeah that's uh size uh and and it's funny because al frames the whole thing with hearst he can't figure out what the hell hearst is doing although we get we have a pretty good idea i think mm-hmm. um but he frames the whole situation later by saying that hearst is trying to turn Sai and um al into a two-headed beast and that again almost implies that they have some sort of parody, but like they don't. <laughs> They're just not on the same level. So um, yeah, I don't know. It's a you know he's size really fallen from graces. He's just got nothing, and he hasn't recruited anyone. Like he hasn't groomed yeah, anyone. Yeah, you know, yeah. We see like with um the, with Adams, I guess. Well, with Adams, with the kid behind the bar who has a yeah. brief moment in this episode, like Al is. Al builds alliances with people, and he builds relationships with people. And Sai apparently just has no interest in doing that, that we've seen. Um, which is, yeah, it's unusual for someone who clearly wants to be a, a power player in town that he just has no motivation to to build connections with people. Doesn't, he just doesn't have the strategic mind for it, I think is the main problem. He, Maybe. He can sort of do it himself, but I don't think he, you know, Al understands that he wasn't there, you know, he, the gem is almost a secondary, well, almost, it's definitely a secondary concern to him. That <laughs> <laughs> He sort of runs that as like his, whereas for Sai, he also doesn't spend all that much time thinking about the Bella Union, but it almost seems like he came to town to set up the Bella Union and that was his goal. And he did that. Whereas Al was like, no, 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 no. I'm running this town. Mm-hmm. The gem is my home base. Yeah. These are two different exercises. And, you know, if you have a home base and you want to run the town, you need a, you know, a small army basically to do that. And Al saw that as being his sort of goal. And I think Sai just sees himself outmaneuvered in that sense, because even if he's smart, even if he's, you know, 
has aspirations. He just doesn't have the the long term thinking to be able to figure out actually what happens when you know I'm outgunned. And he kind of like he has like you know there's people for example there was that uh, when they uh, uh, when he had Moe's manual shot right there were all those people with guns around so like there's people working for him but they're just not people he trusts they're just sort of hired guns he you know he doesn't he hasn't managed to because he doesn't i don't know from what we can tell it doesn't seem like Cy really has that connection with his um his posse i suppose you could call it i guess it is the difference of approach between him and al where al is all about is all about like how can i use other people Right? right. Whereas I think Sai is much more uh, considers himself more a force of nature. It's like, well, I will get things done, and there are people who you know will do my bidding and kind of facilitate that. But it all goes through me. I'm the person who's me, doing right, it. exactly. Um, Whereas Al in this is very clearly willing to source it out to, for example, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. That's he the puts thing. he stakes everything on Dan, um, which is uh, something that you can't really see Sai doing. No, Can you imagine him sending Con Staple to, to fight, fight Captain, Captain Turner. Turner. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a much shorter scene. Um. Yeah, definitely. Um, the other, uh, there was another small um, point I wanted to bring up before we get into the. Oh, uh, Langrish's troop also showed up. Oh yeah, there. I don't know. I don't have much to say about this. I don't really know what's up. I don't have much to say about it worth remarking on, just that uh, there's these new folks in, and there's clearly a lot of historical context we don't have here Yeah. to figure out what's going on here. But basically we have um, Chesterton, I guess, who's this British guy who showed up who seems to maybe have had a relationship with Jack at some point. That's kind of vaguely alluded to. And then there's this guy, is his name Bellegarde or something like that? Who he has sort of a frosty relationship with. Um, who is who is this guy's doing a lot. <laughs> he is a he's a he's a big performance. <laughs> in fact, my fa- yes. one of my favorite moments in the episode with in any other episode, this would have been my favorite moment is when all the actors are in the in the uh, dining area talking, and Richardson <laughs> leans over to EB and he goes, "Are they performing now?" Oh yeah, just because of yeah, the yeah, way yeah. they're talking. Which is yeah. It's like, well, which I is, mean, by the way, I, I, I screenshotted that, um, because for me it was, uh, like a perfect encapsulation of, you know, the, the eternal question of the show that Richard, of all people, Richardson asks, which is, <laughs> are they performing now? Which is a question we ask all the time on this, uh, this podcast, because you can never tell really who's, or you can, but it, you know it's often a question of like, are they performing hours at a, a an act, or are they is there deceit going on? Um, so it's funny to have Richardson ask that in this in this moment. But yes, you're right. It's it's uh, it stuck out to me despite how many other crazy things happen here. Yeah, it's it is a, it is a nice acknowledgement on the part of the show that these that the actor the theater troupe like just has a very different energy from everyone else on the show. That they feel like, I mean, I was a theater kid. I admit, and... Were you really? Oh, huge. Big time, big time. And yeah, when you're around other theater kids, it's like, we're all performing all the time. It never stops. We are all just being as big and as loud and as ridiculous as we possibly can. That's what being a, that's what being a theater kid is. Um, and to see that, like, reflected in the in the world of Deadwood is really funny to me. <laughs> just, like, the way that this new guy talks, where he's just... Everything is like he's 
doing a voice and I'm reading a line and everything is the most important thing that's ever happened. And right. it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really like, it's a really sharp observation of the way that theater people just are. <laughs> it feels familiar. Yeah. It, it uncomfortably familiar. <laughs> Uh, great. Well, I mean, I, I, for for my part, I'm I'm happy to see uh, a new element in the town. Like I like as we mentioned before with language, but like I, as they point out, they said this. You know, the town is thirsting for this sort of thing, and it's it kind of is. Like it, it really does complement the, the. I mean, they haven't started to intermingle as much yet, but it does feel like it fits with Deadwood in a really strange way because it does not seem, as you you've said before, like the kind of town that was you know, that would be supportive of like a theater, but in fact it definitely is. So, um, yeah, let's see. I mean, we don't know how the townspeople are going to respond to Langrish's first show or however it ends up looking. Um, and they do point out the fact that, you know, the Chesame is not built in any way for, um, uh, you know, for performing. So there's going to be a lot of remodeling of things that need to be done. Um, but I kind of don't know. I kind of admire their like spirit. You know, they sort of show up and they're like, "All right, we have to buy a building and we have to remodel everything." And you know, and it's just them. It's not like they have hands or like anyone else to help them out. It's just the, like four or five of them to to figure out how to do all of this. Um, I guess they'll hire some uh, they'll hire some like laborers or whatever. But yeah, they're just like sort of a this little troop that's going to build an entire thing. And they almost seem like a traveling troop that would, um, which they sort of Im- imply they are, but that they just sort of would go from town to town and like perform out of the back of a carriage kind of thing. But instead they're like really going to end up, you know, and as we know, you know, historically they were there from the very beginning of, of Deadwood basically. And were a huge part of it, but like, I don't know. It's, it'll, I, I don't know how that vibe that like sort of traveling theater troupe sort of will, will, will vibe with the rest of the town, especially considering like what's been going on. <laughs> it's just like a completely different world. Yeah, yeah, I guess we'll kind of, again, it's, you know, five episodes in, but I think we're kind of still seeing where, this is still a developing situation with the theater troupe. It's a developing situation, and, you know, we only have seven episodes before the end of the show just ends, so, you know, this may end up being, unfortunately, one of the uh, be sad. Ling- lingering uh, storylines uh, that we don't necessarily get a full resolution to, although, who knows, maybe they'll, they'll play some role, perhaps, um, before the show ends. Uh, and maybe in the movie, I don't know. I genuinely don't even know who's in the film. So, who's to say? Who's to say? I, yeah, um, I don't know. Brian Cox is still alive, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see, I, I, as far as I know. Um, so yeah, there's absolutely no reason he couldn't be involved. Yeah. And you know, it would be uh, anachronistic to remove him. But of course, it's anachronistic to have him come in so late into the uh, into the history of the town. Anyway, so whatever. Um. So yeah, uh, we. Shit. I, why don't we do the fight first, and then we'll do the, the Steve Hostetler Fields storyline. Yeah, because the fight happens in the middle of the episode anyway. So yeah, I know. It almost feels like something that they're going to build to towards for like the conclusion of it. Well, because um, in any other show, sort of in the middle I mean, just jumping into it, in any other show, this would be like, this is the thing, you know how Breaking Bad would always like end on a big shocking moment? Um. Not necessarily a right. cliffhanger, but it would always end on like a big punch, something really like uh to 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 get you excited. This is the kind of thing that would happen at the end of a Breaking Bad episode, um, but it happens halfway through the episode. It happened, and and what one of the most interesting things to me about this fight is that 
it ends, and then it just cuts to uh, Chesterton lying in bed with no fanfare. It's just like, yep. boom, right into the next thing. And It doesn't even show the final uh, final blow. No, it, it cuts away from that, and then it, it's just... It just goes on to the next thing. And that, I think, it, it, it contextualizes the scene as something other than, like, the big shocking TV moment that it could otherwise be. It's it's contextualizes it as, one, just part of life in this town. It is not a, it is not necessarily the most special of two people just beating the shit out of each other in the thoroughfare. It's not the most notable thing that's ever happened. Life goes on. <laughs> life goes on around them. Yep. But also, like... It gives it gives this breathing room of like, it is much more interested in. It does not leave you hanging for the aftermath. It does not save the aftermath for the next episode, and it makes it so that this episode is not about the fight as much as it's about what happens to Dan afterwards. Right, and I think that is what separates Deadwood well, well, from a lesser before, show. It, and, it, and before it's, and after, it's the before and after. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's not. It does not. It kind of pivots on the fight, but it is much more interested in what leads up to it and and what leads out from it and i think that's what separates deadwood from a lesser prestige television show it it is this notion of like we are we are less interested in the big shocking thing than we are in the fallout from that and when a big shocking thing happens it is genuinely shocking because that doesn't happen every week right exactly yeah i mean you know, how many times has this happened? And, and, you know, this actually, it was funny. This seemed to me like when they see each other across the thoroughfare, this is like the closest to a duel that we've really had. And it's not even with guns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, the way the carriage like, passes between them and they have to wait for it to pass. And you see them yeah. from behind each of them from behind it. And then they, it passes by and they walk towards each other and start fighting. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's a, it's very classic Western, but also the way the fight happens is not classic Hollywood in not any way. Not at all. Well, I mean, just the mere uh, presence of uh, of like gore is not something that really is frequently handled in, in westerns, unless it's like a horror western, like Bone Tomahawk or, or something like that. But generally speaking, they they just they don't they tend not to really go that direction. Um, and yet, it also doesn't focus on that too much. Um, so you know, so what? Of course, did I immediately? Can you can you think of the scene that I immediately thought of? Uh, from another TV show when I watched this uh, that uh, I rewatched it. I watched... It's going to come go to ahead. me this... As soon as you say it, I'm going to know exactly what you're talking about. I rewatched The Mountain and the Viper. Oh, yes, duh. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Which was just like, I don't know why, it just was... And I and I don't know people who listen to Star Contrast, our Game of Thrones podcast, uh, might uh, be able to tell me this because I don't, genuinely don't remember... But it would not surprise me if when we saw that, I maybe even referenced this episode, but like in the abstract, because we haven't seen it. <laughs> um, because it's just, I don't know, it's sort of, it's, they, they, they've, they handle it completely differently, but very similar sort of situations. There's not a big twist at the end where the guy gets up and whatever, that doesn't happen. Well, that's the thing, if this um, was, and again, I, I know people don't like it when we compare Deadwood to Game of Thrones, but <laughs> this is, I think, a very pertinent point. Um, first of all, on Game of Thrones, people are getting dismembered in various horrific ways every single week, and it gets old, and you're like, who cares? Like, I've I've seen it. It's over. You've done it. I don't need to see it anymore. But, 
on on Deadwood where gore where there's been gore on this show but it is used so sparingly and there is you know there, I should I say gore there's been blood on this show there has never right. been sort of like be something as as horrific an image as Captain Turner's eye. eyeball hanging out of his head <laughs> as he screams. How great is that? Huh? Crawls through the mud. It's it's disgusting. I've and, and there's a thing. I can't say I've never seen anything like it because I've seen a lot of movies and TV shows where there's a lot of bloody, gory things. But it hits so much harder on Deadwood because Deadwood doesn't do stuff like this. So you can wait until right. halfway through season three to deploy something like this, and and I'm screaming at my computer like, "Holy shit! <laughs> I can't believe this!" Even though I've seen stuff like this before, the fact that it's 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 within this show that doesn't do stuff like this. That's why it's effective. It's not effective if you do it every single week. Right, right, right. If it's a like a zombie show or something like that, yeah. Like, all right, well, everybody's you know their bits of them are falling off or they're getting bitten or whatever. Exactly. No, I think that that you're 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 definitely right about that. Um, but as I'm watching this, well, first of all, the, there's like four thousand cuts around every time. Uh, uh, this is in the Game of Thrones uh, uh, scene, but like four thousand cuts every time uh, Oberyn Martell swings his little spear thing around and it's like cut 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 cut. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure what the purpose of it is, um, but <laughs> it's like it's really strange. Um, by the way, I also hilarious to watch. By the way, if if you haven't seen, if you watched all of Game of Thrones, folks out there, and um, you haven't seen that scene in a long time, go back and rewatch it. It is amazing to see the actors like enjoying themselves. It is actually kind of striking <laughs> to watch, like Lena Headey and um, and uh, and even Peter Dinklage and all these people just like they're like. A reacting to what's happening and it's just completely different uh, whereas like in the past three or four seasons you just they just kind of i don't know a lot of felt like sleepwalking anyway um so that was that was immediately striking to me but also just like how it's handled and again you talk about how a show would have that's the end of that episode it ends with an extremely gory shot of this exploded head and uh not to ruin it for people who haven't seen it i guess but anyway it ends on a very gory sort of conclusion and the camera just wa- you know stares at it basically um and it's just it's not how this is handled at all and it's so what i love there's two the two things i really love about this 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 fight in the thoroughfare is that um, for one i was terrified for dan oh i i, I, was, I was that's the thing <laughs> being conditioned by prestige television, I was like, oh, yeah. he's going to die. He's going to drown in this puddle. And that's horrible. And he genuinely could have. I mean, yeah. even Al's like, all right, that's it. I'm still not completely sh- clear on how he got out of that, by the way. <laughs> I didn't go back and rewatch it. But it was not. He does, he does something. He, he like does some kind of move. Or like, yeah. He, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it I was, was a good one. Yeah, yeah okay. Was, but... <laughs> I'm, I'll take it. <laughs> I'm not complaining. Exactly. Um, it's not like some feat of superhuman strength. So that's the other thing too, is like, you know, Game of Thrones sort of dabbled in some of those things that you, which is fine, but like, it's just a different sort of thing. But this is just two people fighting. And the, what I love about it is a, you don't know what's going to happen to Dan. Um, not because this is a show where that, where people that you like die all the time. That's not the show's vibe at all. Um, they can die as we see later on, but they don't necessarily just, drop dead it's not like that kind of uh, thing certainly not to shock the uh, the viewer it's not like that kind of vibe um but the other aspect i just really like is the way over the course of the 
I love the preparation and all that stuff, but I love over the course of the fight how Dan just turns into this like swamp creature. Yeah. <laughs> like by the end of it, he's just covered in mud and like he just looks terrifying by the end of it. And he's just, it's just so animalistic and, and, uh, and raw. And I just, yeah, I really, I, 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 I like the fight a lot. And I think it's, it's a great fight because like, there's no choreography to speak. I mean, there's obviously choreography, right? Yeah, I was gonna say there's loads of choreography. Obviously, this is not improvised, but it doesn't seem like <laughs> it doesn't seem like there is because yeah. it is so. I mean, what I the, the thing I admire most about this fight is that they take two swings at each other and they are both immediately exhausted. Like you can just <laughs> yep. feel it's like they're just like stumbling around in the mud, holding onto each other's shoulders, like they can barely stand grappling. up. Yeah, exactly. And it feels like yeah, if two hu- incredibly strong guys punched each other in the head, they would be staggering, and they would be tr- <laughs> and they would be you know caught off balance. It's not like they're superheroes; they're just two right. guys. And that's like, you know, first of all, it's a long fight. It goes on for like almost five minutes, I think. Or it felt yeah, like it goes on for a while. But it is so like the way that they grapple and just like that their movements are so it's not you know, like when I say there's no choreography, I mean like it's not like you're watching a John Wick movie where it's like I was gonna say everything is so clean and every and every dis, every movement is so graceful and like precise. Like there's no precision here. It's the sloppiest, uh most uncoordinated movement. And that's why it feels so natural. It's like it's I, I don't I know how to say it yeah, it's so cool. That's that's why well, you know in in John Wick and and I was going to specifically actually mention John Wick right you know Keanu Reeves trained with this these famous martial arts trainers and then went to these martial arts trainers and trained with them to learn other, and he learns all these like real martial arts techniques but of course like Dan doesn't know any <laughs> martial arts I mean it wouldn't make any sense right there yeah. are real grappling choreograph you know choreographical things you can do uh, if you want to do jiu-jitsu or whatever like sort of things you can sort of fold into a a fight scene but it wouldn't make any sense in this context it's just raw strength and it's not like captain turner seems to have any neither of them seem to have any training whatsoever in terms of this this is just the last time i ran at a guy and beat him with a stick it worked so i'm going to do it again kind of thing (laughs) that's basically the whole the whole thought process um and in terms of just prior to this fight in terms of what Hearst is hoping to get out of this it sounds like this is how he publicly humiliates people because I guess he feels like the way to break Al it might be through his his second not because his second is so important to him but because he can do it in front of everyone and that might have because you know Al covered up his wound and tried to hide from everyone when Hearst you know hurt him the last time and that is part of his you know Hearst is right about that that is part of his um his power is in maintaining this veneer of like cutthroatedness and um, invulnerability. And if he can pierce that, that might shake up how the town's power dynamics work. Um, But of course it completely backfires on Hearst. Um, And actually to the point where Hearst is genuinely seems kind of sad afterwards. Like he had a real relationship with Captain Turner. Um, well, they have this great exchange before the fight. First of all, again, very amusing the way Captain Turner's like ridiculous stretches that he's doing. Yeah, yeah. And his yeah, like, yeah. groaning as he, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it is all completely absurd that, and, and by the way, when, when at the very beginning of the episode, when he says to, 
when Adams is trying to play off like he doesn't know who Dan is, he's like, oh, what, yeah. already the big guy? And Turner <laughs> says, I guess he must seem big to you. Um, very funny. And My guy's bigger than your guy. And Christopher Nolan uh, stole that for The Dark Knight Rises, clearly. Because um, <laughs> it's the same for line. For you. Yeah. For you. Um, <laughs> no, but yeah, like it is... The, the the degree to which this fight is like theater and and Hearst says as much he's like you know go go make a show of it go go make an example of him right and and Turner has this great line in that scene where Hearst is asking him to remember some fight previously that he'd had and Turner very brashly is like I don't remember a fight right um just this we don't we see but he remembers the name his name was Leonard or something like his that name was right? Leonard, he the name but he, he doesn't just, remember yeah. that he doesn't remember a fight <laughs> but no it is Turner is such a fun character even though we see him so briefly this character who is just like first of all huge he's a huge man but also yes. just like fully confident in himself and is like I like with no ego about it that we see he's just like no I'll I, I can beat the shit out of you because that's because i'm huge and that's what i do he doesn't he doesn't think he doesn't seem to he's not like hearst who thinks he's so great he's just like no like i'm i'm a i'm a big man and i can beat you up that's that's my thing (laughs) um and to see that to see that introduced in this episode and then completely undercut not because and again it's like another thing i like about this fight dan is not al al characterizes it as a fair fight and it is Dan doesn't win because he is physically stronger and he doesn't win because he's smarter. He just gets one good move in and that's all it needs yeah, basically. to happen. He gets, yep. he gets his thumb into his eye and that's all he needs to do. And then he's, and won. it could have, it could have gone, it could have gone a completely different way. And it almost did go a completely different way. Yep. Exactly. And I think that's why we see Dan so broken up at the end of the episode. Not be, not just because, you know, obviously he's killed people before and Al says, well, it's different when it's a fair fight. Cause you see the light go out of their eyes. And there's probably, right. I think that's, you know, we're meant to understand that that is a part of it. But what I see in Dan in this episode is he recognizes that this fight did not go his way because he was the better fighter because he was the stronger person or the smarter person. It went his way, not even because of luck, just because he did one, he managed to get one good move in and that's it. And I think the part of the reason he's so broken up is because he recognizes that even though it was a fair fight, it didn't really end fairly because it didn't, the fight wasn't won. as a contest of strength or as a contest of strategy. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, I, I, I do think I like, I love when Al says that at the end of it, it's just you and death, Yeah, <laughs> which is <laughs> quite a statement. Um, and he also, I like that he points out that, you know, a fair fight, something we've always run from. We, we're not really into that sort of thing. <laughs> um, but I like, I, I think that Dan is also, I, I agree with you. I think that it, it's it's a sense of facing your own mortality in a way that perhaps he hadn't before. Um, he's really, I mean, he's so, he's, you know, there's that shot of him just, actually, I love this shot of him when he's he's naked just sitting on the, you know, in front of the mirror yeah. in, in that room. And uh, he turns towards the door after Johnny leaves. And he looks, It actually, to me, it really looked like, um, have you seen that painting? Uh, Saturn devouring his son. Ooh, I, by, yes, uh, yes, that's Francisco. very astute. Yeah, 
it looks it looks a lot like that. It's like this really uh primal sort of you know caveman sort of appearance and and it's 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 sort of what I was getting at even in the fight he starts to you know emit this but when he's completely naked it looks even more like this you know this very like dark you know um, caked in mud yeah caked in mud it's just oh it's it's crazy um and by the way the scene that also just keeps sticking on my head is when he's like greasing up before the fight too i don't yeah. know why but they're just like but to make him more just slippery it, like harder to get a hold on right as my yeah I, I guess so yeah yeah uh, it's just like transfixing. It keeps popping into my head, and I'm not sure why. He's just like it's just this like weird brown grease. It's so and he like puts it in his well, it's hair. disgusting. Yeah, it's disgusting because it's like it is. It is introducing the this fight in a way that is like this is gross. Yeah, right. Like there's there's nothing glamorous or like honorable yeah, true, about true. this. It's just like yeah. it's just gross. And the, the yeah, he's just slathering this disgusting thing thing on him to make to lube himself up so that he's harder to get a hold on and putting it in his hair so that he can't grab his hair and johnny makes a comment that like well he has the advantage on you because you can't grab his hair um and i i i almost thought that that was going to lead to dan coming out having cut off his hair i thought that would have been cool yeah Um, yeah yeah. but it looked like he the glare seemed to be but he is too much pride right like he would never do that (laughs) Um, um but of course talk about pride you know turner doesn't even he's still wearing nice clothes yeah going into this fight he doesn't grease up or whatever he like stretches a bit and then it comes outside uh whereas dan is like uh you know completely he's greased himself it's just a completely different uh preparation but you know and maybe that's i don't know maybe that that's what gave him the edge it's hard to say really um but yeah it's a it's a, it's a brutal fight but also and i like how it's shot too because of course you know it keeps cutting to all the people watching it um and it also feels very gladiatorial I think, right? You have like the emperor deciding, like, you know, yeah, thumbs up, thumbs down. I thought of the know, exact kind of same thing, actually. Yeah, because because you get you get Dan looking to you both of them look look yeah, up they both do it. for approval yep. to to finish the job. Yeah. Um, and there's that great moment where Al kind of you see him in close up look down as he thinks the fight's lost, and then he hears Dan get back up and his and his head perks back up. Yep. Um, but the way that it's shot is really good because it is all of these close ups not of their faces, but just of their bodies. So it's these super close-ups, just of like their bodies contorting and moving, and you can't really tell who's who. And it's just this, you know, the title of the episode is A Two-Headed Beast. And obviously Al says it in dialogue, but that's what I think of when I think of the title of this episode. It's the two of them locked in combat. Yeah, that's definitely how I envisioned this show. I mean, obviously, because I knew this was a centerpiece of the episode, a centerpiece of the episode. So I was thinking, well, it's about them. Um, but yeah, Al, Al seems to frame it in the context of Psy and Al, which doesn't really come out in this episode. But in terms of yeah, it, the way the two of them are locked in in combat um, between uh, Dan and Turner, I think that that you're right. I think that definitely is an appropriate uh, application of the title. Yeah, this oh man, I was I when I say I was screaming at my computer, that is not an exaggeration. <laughs> I was shouting out loud which i don't do all the time do you um do you what do you think of this the fact that hearst has now been arrested you well let's talk about that um just to jump ahead to like the consequence of this fight well because what happens is hearst kind of stumbles into the bella union um 
Well, we should say earlier in the episode, Merrick and Blazanov come across this body that's been just dumped in the thoroughfare with a well, knife yes, sticking yes, out yes, of its yes. chest, which um, which um, Charlie identifies as another one of the unionizing uh, Cornish workers. Right. He might have been one of the ones who came to talk to them in the jail. Though I think sure. it must be because Charlie knows his name. Um, right, exactly. But no, it, I mean, just the image of what, what sticks out to me about this is just the, just the idea of leaving the knife in his chest yep. is such a potent image and a, and a deliberate, obviously, a deliberate image to show like it's not, he's not just a dead body. He has been murdered. And this is a warning. You know, when Charlie, when uh, Seth asks, does anyone around, are there any friends of his around here? And everyone turns their backs and walks away because yep. they get the message that is so I mean, it's so sinister, but it is such an evocative, uh, just such evocative imagery um, that I, and I think it's really cool and really scary. Um, yeah, and it's also the kind of thing you would never see in a modern murder, right? Because of fingerprints and all the rest of it, but you yeah. would never leave the murder weapon behind. But well, yeah. and it goes to show that's Hurst flexing his power again, right? It's like I can, yep. I can, le- I can just do this to get the to burn that image into everyone's mind because obviously you know you can't get fingerprints off it anyway you can't identify the knife um but well without without naming names there was a politician who not so long ago said they could kill someone in the middle of uh, fifth <laughs> avenue and uh, not face any consequences mm. so you know i mean but that's this is fifth avenue of deadwood i mean that's what it is right so i mean this is it is the same that. principle you're right it is it's the same it is, principle yeah. so <laughs> so there you have it there you have it <laughs> And we're not naming names. We're not saying Uh, who we're talking about. It could be anyone. Could be any politician. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, I think that that's, uh, uh, that's what it is. That's what the, you know, it's this, this, this um, immunity. Uh, But yeah. And the other thing about this, I don't know if you notice this, when, uh, when, when Merrick and Blazanov find this body, these shots, these low angle shots of, of Merrick, like as almost from the body, uh, the, the this dead body, yeah, uh, of Merrick and Blazanov, with the trees in the background, uh, or the sky in the background, are shots that we almost never get in this show. There's always buildings behind people. There's always something. Yeah. behind it's very rarely like nature. And what it immediately um seemed like to me, it immediately called to mind was like like Oregon Trail or something. Like it just hmm. it sort of put Deadwood in the context of its surrounding environment because of course it's surrounded by trees and hills and all the rest of it right these are this is that's where it's located um but we never see really outside of the town so like it's not something that's ever really used as a backdrop and i was just like i don't know it just threw in a whole new perspective on on like where they are in like the context of of uh of um of south dakota and i was just like i don't know for, for it's just a, it was just a small moment um but it's something that i i think from what i saw in the trailers for the movie that we'll maybe get a bit more of is like where are they where is deadwood and of course part of it is to do with effects budgets and stuff because they obviously are not shooting this in south dakota I hate to bring it to people they are shooting it in california and so they, there's a little <laughs> bit of like you know you gotta manipulate the backgrounds a bit to fit um the the uh like what it should look like versus what it does look like um but you know now it's much cheaper to do a lot of these effects, so I imagine we might get a little bit more of that. But yeah, I was just like I was observing this, going, you know what? It's it's a small thing, but it really like we don't usually get this. It's usually it's usually the gem or something is behind or you know whatever the post office. Um, but yeah, uh, and again we have this very clear, very like open statement that uh, this is a 
like a, a union situation and that's the problem um and that that's that's where hearst's uh animosity really lies because it prevents him from making more profit i guess that's the main problem yeah so, so w- yeah. what this leads to though is is seth arresting him and what is first of all hearst is drunk when seth goes to him which, which seth sees and he is so drunk that he threatens openly threatens to kill seth you know not in so many words but he's like i when he says i shut up or i will shut you up it's yep. very clear what he's talking about and i love god timothy oliphant is so good <laughs> he's so good and he's so good in this moment when he says like it's it's like he's about to cry when he's like threatening a peace officer <laughs> you are under arrest and he's like just because he is so profoundly offended at the notion that this guy could openly threaten to kill the sheriff. Especially at this point where he's like, you have no idea how close I am to just blowing your head off. I've wanted to do that for ever. And you're still antagonizing me. Mm -hmm. Like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And it's really, I mean, obviously it's not so surprising that um, Hearst would be so bold because he's, he thinks he's God's gift to creation. He thinks he's untouchable. Like that's what we've talked, that's what we talked about with the, with the body. Yeah. Um, but still, you know that Bullock, like, lives on a hair trigger. (laughs) (laughs) I would not be pushing buttons there, personally. Um, but yeah, he just, uh, he just goes for it. And, uh, the consequence is Seth literally leading him through the streets by the ear. By the ear. Yeah. (laughs) Which is gonna, that, I mean, more than anything else in this episode, uh, potentially could be the could precipitate the most drama right because obviously Hearst is going to retaliate in some form or fashion he's already distraught over Turner's death and now and sort of being humiliated by Al and now uh, he's been even further humiliated by Bullock Um, so what started as sort of a cold war I suspect might turn into more of an all-out war uh, after this um, well I guess we have no idea what's going to happen next but like in the next episode but I assume after you know after what's happened it's it's going to get intense. Yeah, I would expect I would not expect it to simmer down after what we just saw. <laughs> um so yeah, uh and I don't really know what Bullock's plan is like what does he think he can what's his I don't know what his I don't know what his his goal is here. He seemed it seems like this is it's not that this is a plan, this is an alternative to just killing Hurst. And this is the best he can come up with because um he can't kill her, so he's sort of stuck in this position of trying to figure out how uh, to deal with or remove her, or just basically vent his anger um, in the interim. And the best he can come up with is just throw him into a cell. Well, he says to Al, he's like, if we don't do anything, we're just cowards. And that, I think, is what it is all yeah. about to him. He's like, I cannot just sit here. I can't just sit on my hands. I can't just not do anything when he is being when he is just murder, murdering people left and right in my town. Um, even if, again, and, and this is, I just want to say, a, a lot of people can be critical of writing in a show or a movie when they say that characters act stupidly or they do right. something stupid. And I think that that is, that is often worth criticizing. Like it can be, like if it can be frustrating to watch something and be like, oh, they're, they're doing the stupidest thing. Why are they not doing the smart thing? But I think that it's 
Deadwood really goes to show that that is not necessarily in and of itself a valid critique because Seth, characters on this show act stupidly all the time. What Seth does at the end of this episode is profoundly stupid. <laughs> but it is what it more importantly, it is in character. It is believable that he would do that. It makes sense based on what we know about him. And it facilitates drama that is compelling. So it doesn't even it doesn't matter like if everyone made the smart decisions on this show, it would be less interesting to watch because it would just be a lot of people biding their time and minding their own business and not really doing anything dramatic. Like the smart thing would certainly not have been to send Dan and Captain Turner out to fight each other. That was not smart on Hurst's part or Al's part, but they did it and it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, it is. It well, is, I think yeah. again, I think Hurst had a, I think Al just was like, I guess we'll see what happens. I think Hurst really did have a plan, not like a complicated plan, but just a general plan, which seems to have worked in the past, which again, is just intimidate everybody in the town or area, whatever, into sort of, um, submitting to him. Uh, but that only works if Turner wins and he didn't. Um, and it's risky every time, right? You don't know what's going to happen for all he knows, you know, Dan could have cheated, pulled out a knife and killed Turner. Like there's any number of things that can happen there, but yes, I agree. Um, and yeah, and it's an exceptionally stupid, um, uh, 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 move on, on Seth's part, but he does, I mean, this is, you know, it's like when he showed his, his hand immediately to Hearst on, uh, his feelings regarding Alma. Like mm-hmm. he just, he doesn't, <laughs> he does not think strategically. Nope. Uh, and he was livid this episode in part because of what happened. I mean, he remember this arrest comes just after what happens with Hosteller. So, um, yeah, I suppose we should, let's, let's, let's do that. Let's cover that. <sighs> Man. <laughs> Is this where you thought it was going to go? No. And I will, w- <laughs> and I'm just sad. It's just, yeah. It's just the, it is, when that, when I, when that gunshot happened, I jumped, I literally jumped because I thought anything else was going to happen. You know, I just, and here's the thing. It's funny because it, it is, it was foreshadowed, right? Right. We it's been, it's was... been heavily foreshadowed. Yeah. It is. And that's the thing. Like, again, when we talk about shocking moments, this moment is shocking not because it's unpredictable, even though I certainly did not predict it. It's it makes sense. I understand why Hostetler does what he does because I understand Hostetler as a character, and what is so that is what is so profoundly depressing about it. Yeah, because like, of course, this is how it was going to end. You know, this was never gonna this was never gonna go right. Steve was always going to push him and push him and push him until this happened, until this happened. And Steve, not even necessarily, Steve, not knowing anything about Hostetler as a person, not having any reason to believe that he would do this. Steve is just a, a nasty, evil person. And he's right. going to keep doing and saying terrible things to him. And Hostetler being who he is, he's going to get pushed over the edge. And God. Absol- absolutely. And it's, it's, um, you know, it's, I think it's shocking in part also because, you know, we finally, we feel like a character who we generally like. I think it's hard to not, As, it's uh, hard to have a negative opinion of Hostetler. No, right? sir, like, he's, he's a very, like, he's, he's a, you appreciate his, him as a kind of a very upright, very 
uh, a noble guy, a good guy, uh, yeah. as frustrating and as stubborn as he can be, be but that's yeah, what makes right, him a good yeah. character. But there's no version, like there's no version of watching this unless you are yourself like a neo-Nazi, where you <laughs> could, uh, where you could not like consider Hostetler in like a in a positive light. Really, I mean, I guess it's hard to certainly hard not to in the context villain. of his uh, the context of him and Steve. Yeah, he is. Yeah, exactly. The quote unquote good guy of be, that relationship. Yeah, you can't be on Steve's side unless you are Steve, really, or yeah. a Steve-like person. So just let's put it that way. Um, so, so yeah, and so you know, when this happens, the shocking thing is that this somebody we care about that we've we've come to care about has you know we were introduced to Todd Stetler, I think, in the the first season. So you know, mm-hmm. this is a long time coming. Uh, and building to this moment, and it's just uh, yeah, it's incredibly tragic. Um, by the way, I like in the beginning we, we've now seen that uh, Fields has connected with Aunt Lou, who's a new person in town, which means and they kind of had this, you know, I think she's giving them food or something. And, yeah. And uh, at you know, at personal cost to herself, and but there's still this sense of solidarity among the the few black residents of the town. Um, which I, I appreciated as a as a concept, and it'll be I don't know it, we don't know what's going to happen with Fields if he's going to stick around or again historically he was around Deadwood for a long long time so he could stay around he he doesn't have any particular reason to go to Oregon um, unless he just doesn't want to be there anymore uh, but you know we could see that relationship build but I just I did want to flag that up um, but yeah I mean the thing that I think I like the most about this as horrible as it is is it it speaks to a phenomenon, like a real sociological phenomenon of, you know, the, the material impact of racism. Yeah. Not, not like systemic racism. I'm not talking about historical uh, generational trends in like poverty and things like that. Forget about that for a minute, right? That's all real and different. Uh, but just the mental health impact and the, you know, Steve can say all of the racist, the most racist, vile stuff in the world, and it almost just rolls off of these two characters' backs because they've heard it their whole lives, and it's just you know par for the course. Um, although you you know obviously it gets internalized, but literally like the one thing Hostetler is like, I just can't tolerate, and of course it's not really just about this; it's about everything, but it's particularly this is being called a liar, right? It's his very dignity as a person, and that drives him like beyond the beyond the edge of, of you know I'm, well it's I not just of, that it's like reputation too because what he is so sure. upset about really is this idea that he's going to leave town and he he will have no way of proving that steve is wrong after he leaves steve gets right. to go around deadwood for the rest of time and tell everyone that he uh was cheated and, and that hostetler lied and 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 tried to pull, and, and that he's this terrible person, and he knows in this moment, I mean, what is so, again, so tragic about when, when they pull out this board, and it's been wiped blank, which of course it has, because you wrote it in shock, there was, shock, n- you yeah. should never have expected that it was g- g- gonna stay on the board, <sighs> I, we talked about that last season, I think, when it happened, Right, right, right. it's just a crazy thing to think, but what is so tragic about when they see that board, and it's blank, is that there's nothing Hostetler can do at that point. There is no way for him to, pr- I mean, uh, you know, e- even if he had Seth search all of his belongings and, and search the entire town for the quote-unquote real board, Steve would just say that he hid it outside of town. The real board? 
or the real birth certificate. Mm, I am trying to make to a serious <laughs> point, and you are no, bra- <laughs> no, no, no I'm not. What, what is- I'm serious. No, it's uh, no, I'm I'm actually dead serious. It's the exact same thing, right? And I, I don't. I again. I, don't I mean, no. Now that I I was I was too upset to recognize what you were actually saying, but you were absolutely <laughs> no. right. <laughs> right where it's there the was no thing. long for there was no long enough form birth certificate to convince people who were convinced that the birth certificate wasn't real right there was no way to prove that and it's all of, and it's just it's this recurring phenomenon of dehumanization and of 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 degradation to the point where you are trying to take away someone's Status, no how much, no matter how hard they've worked to earn it, no matter what, whatever, you just, you can't handle that they've made something of themselves, right? The person with a real business and a real uh, uh, stake in the town wasn't Steve. Steve contributes nothing mm-hmm. to the town. He does no money. He has no business. He has no, not, I don't even know why he's there. He's not even a prospector. Uh, genuinely, he just seems to sit around getting drunk. I don't even know where he gets money for that. Hostetler's the one with the livery. Right? He's the one with a thing that can be sold. And then, ultimately, you know, bags of gold. That's Hostetler. He's the one who's actually legit. But that's not good enough. It doesn't matter, you know, what schools you go to. What You're never going to be good enough because you're always going to be lesser than me as the, you know, that's the message being driven into. And, you know, to internalize that for your whole life, you know, and and to, in a way of adapting to that, saying, like, well, the one thing I know I can do is be honest and make sure everyone knows that I'm honest and sort of do that kind of thing. And that's what Hostetler, that's his his form of adaptation to this beratement, this constant beratement his whole life. And um, it just gets to be too much for him. And he ends up, you know, he ends up killing himself. And it's just absolutely awful. With no hesit, and that what's most disturbing about it, if I as I replay it in my mind, is that there's no hesitation. Nope. He just takes off his tie and walks into the other room and shoots himself in the head. There is no. Well, he's distressed for sure. I mean, you can see he's really distressed. No, yeah, but there's no like. It's not like this happens later that night because he's been just stewing right. in it. It's just he gets so upset that he just does it, and it's. It's like his way of proving his innocence or his. Uh, that yeah, because this, but again, because I like I like I was saying, this is a situation where Steve wins because the board yep. is blank. Steve wins because Hostetler can never prove that Steve is lying. He just can't, and he's out. From his perspective, he's out of options. I mean, obviously, he's not really out of options because if he wasn't so proud then he could just leave and forget about it. And he's never going to go to this town again. So what does he care what they think of him in Deadwood? But because right. he is such a stubborn, proud man, he cannot deal with the idea that there are people in the world who think he's a liar. I'm, I guess he's always dealt with his, you know, with delivery and everything else, honestly. Yeah. To, to the point, to not, not to the point, but to, to furthering the point, that he is, you know, in this society, in this very racist period of time, that he is a good person, that he is a trustworthy person, that he is not what people like Steve say he is. And now he's in this situation where Steve says he's something and he and he has, obviously he's right, he's in the right, but he cannot prove it by his actions. 
And that's what's so true. Like Steve gets one over on him just, just by lying, just by, just by, just by lying. That's, that's all he has to, oh my God. I'm, I'm, I was genuinely broken up about this. I, I was, I was, I was distraught. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely horrible. And I, you know, I can only think of, um, uh, you know, there was a, there was a famous activist in New York who, who, who died, uh, back in 20, recently in the past couple of years. Um, and it was, uh, it was like a heart thing. Um, but it was attributed, you know, in part and very, very, um, uh, earnestly by like friends and relatives and things like that, that like, this was also a, in large part, a result of, of like just incessant, you know, racism and, and, and the way that that impacted this person, um, had a deleterious effect on, on her health. So like, yeah, maybe there was a potential for a heart issue anyway and all the rest of it, but like you, there is a demonstrable impact that it has on people to just have to face that kind of thing all the time. Um, and you know, to see that play out here, uh, it's just, first of all, it's not the kind of thing that, you know, think about how many shows or movies and things are about racism, right? It's like, it's either like slavery where it's, you know, physical torture and all these things, which are horrible and, and real and things that happen. They're just, they're just much more run of the mill, you know, and, and, um, egregious and, uh, uh, brutal and whatever in such a way that you can remove yourself from it. Cause you're like, well, we're not doing that. So therefore it's sort of, it's at a remove, but like what happens here, this is just normal. Like this could happen now. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is not, this isn't so it's not structural. Like what you're saying is like, it is not structural. It is not, um, it is not imposed by the law. It is entirely interpersonal. Yep. Exactly. It's one person's word against the other. But it is also like, we, but Steve is also bolstered by the structural racism of the time. Oh, of course. That, that is what Hostetler, the assumption Hostetler makes is that people will believe him. Yep. Even though Seth Which is, is in assumption. the room and is on his side. He, even though that's the case, Hostetler has every reason to believe that it doesn't matter, that people will believe Steve. So it is interpersonal, but it is also, it is backed up by the very real um societal societal racism that is behind that creates steve and that and that boosts steve and that he lives in exactly exactly yeah no it's um it's a it's it's a it's an absolutely horrifying web and i i'm curious to see how fields deals with it like i said if he if he ditches and goes to oregon then like fine then he'll just leave the show uh but if he sticks around you know it'll be crazy to see how he you know, he as different as he was from Hosteller, and he pretty much is in every way the opposite. He's younger. He's a bit more, maybe a bit younger. He's um, uh, has a completely different approach to how he handles these sorts of situations. One of them is just get the hell out uh, and save your own skin, kind of thing. Um, but he was friends with him, you know, and they they had a real relationship. And you know, he could take this out on Steve. And there's any number of ways this could play out, um, including just ending it right here. And this is the end of the storyline. It's it's not really clear where where it's going to go from here. But um, yeah. Anyway, but it's off of this that Seth is so furious and comes in and ends up arresting uh, Hearst because it's just the culmination of the entire day's ridiculousness that he 
just throws caution to the wind, as he often does, but even more so here, and uh, and puts uh, puts Hurst in jail. So, yeah, I'm really sad to see Hostetler go. Yeah, uh, I mean, one one if if nothing else, one fewer black character on this show. That's true. That's true. And uh, I mean, well, we maybe- did just. We, we did we, just we meet Aunt Lou. Maybe more will come in before the end of the season. You never know. Um, could be, could be. But it is. Uh, you're right, and it's a it's a loss for the show in that regard. I think it affected, like as these things go, an effective one, right? It could have. Been, oh, def- I'm not. Know, I'm not. I'm not saying that. Like, oh, of course they're killing off the black character. I, <laughs> we have just spent well, a long been, time discussing how great the writing is that that led to this. Well, moment. this is the kind of thing that I could have seen them doing. They could have had Steve kill Hotstetler or something for. You know, they could have gone and let's say they have it. So he wants the delivery, and Seth says no, and and there's no loan, there's no none of that story plays out, and they just have Steve, you know, sneak into Hostetler's house in the night and like try and kill him or something like that, right? That that could have been how this went, and that would have felt more like what you're saying, right? More like, oh, of course they're, they're killing off like one of the few black characters in the show, but the way it is executed here, and it's it's sort of of his sort of, I'm putting this in quotes, his own agency, right? He kills himself. You know, nobody's killing him, but of course they are in a, in a way. Um, it's just a, it's a very different thing than, than where the way it could have gone, which is, you know, racism is bad. Right? <laughs> it just, it didn't go that direction. And I think I appreciate that. That's how the, you know, and, and to prove racism is racism, racism is bad. We are going to kill this black character. Or we're going to have a white, you know, the white mob killed this black character and that, you know, it can be done, but it's been, it's been done before. And this is just, I mean, I've never seen this before. I don't think and this is really something. Um, and I also just want to flag the scene, the scene where Hostetler when when Seth goes into the room and actually sees the whole scene and it's quite uh, grim, um, there is a scene and I will not ruin this in any more depth than it's possible here because it's it's a I love the movie a lot. Um, there's a movie by Michael Haneke called Cachet, which I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, um, I don't remember. So I went through scene... I went through a Haneke phase. So I might have at that point, but I don't remember. Okay, it was a two thousand nine film, I think. It's it's really good, well worth watching. Really slow burner, sort of thriller, very almost Hitchcock like, but um, way slower, way slower, <laughs> just really, really, really slow. Um, but like really intense, and it all builds to um a scene that resembles this in some ways, and I won't say more than that. But it is a hell of a hell of a moment, and it's immediately what I thought of when I when I saw this again. I was like, you know what? It does kind of remind me a bit of Cachet. So, just throwing that out there. If you haven't seen Cachet, definitely look it up. That's I think it's called Hidden or something in in English. Um, but yeah, so that's uh, I think that's a two headed beast. I, I don't think there's there's much else. Uh, no, yeah. This week. So uh, next week is um, a rich find, which. I genuinely have no idea what that's going to be about because a rich find almost implies like a new claim, but it, that doesn't seem right. Yeah, I guess I don't know. <laughs> I have no predictions. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. Last week it was like, all right, well we get we have some idea of what's going on, but yeah, I have no idea. Uh, a rich find. So, um, yeah, tune in next week and we'll we'll talk we'll chat about that. Uh, if you are uh, listening to this uh, on the website, uh, remember you can subscribe. Um, to movie fail so you can submit your email uh through the email 
thingy on the side. Uh, you can also find us on Spotify or on um, uh, iTunes or Google Play or any of the other uh, podcast readers of your choice. Uh, and um, if you do submit your email on the website, uh, you'll get updates on whenever we post reviews or, or write-ups or, or a new podcast. So uh, you can find us all sorts of ways. Uh, but yeah, thanks for joining me, and uh, we'll, we'll chat next week. Bye.